Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, we have one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to your family. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know where the book of Galatians is located. Uh, large numbers of chapters with small numbers of verses. And again, this morning, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's read the passage together. Paul writes and says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Hey, let me lead us in a short time of prayer once again. Father God, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to consider what true freedom is, what it looks like how we are to be found walking in it. But God, as I consider the events of this week, the difficulties that many of us have faced, losing children, losing siblings, losing friends, receiving diagnosis of cancer, succumbing to disease, God, we come in heavy-hearted, we come in weak, we come in broken. And so this idea of freedom is well beyond what we have experienced this week. But yet your word tells us that we've been set free unto freedom by Christ. So God, I pray that as your word challenges our experience, that it contradicts our assumptions, that as it speaks truth, to the way in which we despise your freedom, we only want our freedom, our autonomy, that your spirit would bring a strong sense of rebuke and correction to our hearts. God, that we would be set free. That we would be reminded of the freedom that we have and the freedom that we are not currently enjoying. God, we ask that you be made much of in our worship, that your spirit would be free to commit heart change, lead men and women from death to life, darkness to light this morning. God, we love you. We pray for the other churches of our community. We are thankful to be able to partner for the gospel with them, and we pray that you would do abundantly amazing works in their places of worship this morning. God, our hearts are hurting for those in Afghanistan. We pray for them, for the families of the servicemen who lost their lives this week, we pray for them. For those in southeastern Louisiana who today are bracing, they're running, they're looking for the impact of Ida coming in on the anniversary of Katrina. So God, we pray for uh, the first responders, we pray for the churches, we pray for those who are living in fear this morning. Father, we Thank you for the gift of life 
We thank you for an opportunity to worship and to do so this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that we would leave changed as we encounter your spirit. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I'm considering and kind of going through and, and thinking about this idea of freedom. It, and I don't know how the idea of, of freedom hits you. I don't know what comes to your mind. I don't know what experiences you've had. Maybe you did a stint in jail and you, you got let out and you said, I'm never going back because freedom isn't something I'm willing to let go. Maybe you're just a huge Mel Gibson fan. So every time somebody says freedom, you just want to yell, freedom, right? You drop a handkerchief and this is just kind of how you roll all through life. But I think for a vast majority of people I meet, there is this mistaken understanding of what freedom is and how it is applied within the American life and within our context. And I think because there is this, this discontinuity in these things and there's this confusion into how it is applied, there's this frustration that you have this sense that this isn't the freedom I want. But really, when we begin to have this, this honest assessment of things, the freedom I want is to not be told what to do. The freedom I want is not in any way, shape, or form to have to live in submission to this book, to, have it, to really to live in submission to anybody. The freedom I want is a hypersense of individual, individualism that says nobody can tell me what to do, and everybody has to do something that closely approximates what I do. And when they don't, Ooh, that is rubbing up against my freedom. And I hate it. And I'm tempted to hate them. But let me just tell you, the freedom Paul's talking about has no conception of that. If you were to walk into the room where Paul's sitting with an amanuensis and he's just kind of walking back and forth and he's dictating these things and you're like, that's not the freedom I want, Paul would say, oh, well, tell me what the freedom you want. And you begin to spell it out. Oh, I want a freedom this is, and a freedom this is, and a freedom this is. I don't have a box to put that in. I don't have a conception of that. So this is what I'm asking. Take your understanding of freedom. And set it to the side for a second. And over the course of the next 30 minutes, ask yourself, is my freedom a biblical freedom? Or is it a freedom in my own making? So what Paul says, look at what he writes in the beginning. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So first of all, his freedom has set us free from something. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 4, look at what he says. He said, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and the Father. So we recognize first and foremost that this freedom is a freedom from this present age. Now most of us, our understandings of freedom is living riotously in enjoyment of this present, we wouldn't say evil, we would say awesome age, because this is the age we live for. And it shows. It shows in many of the decisions we make, it shows in many of the ways we live our lives, it shows in many of us in our response to Christ. What does he say? He says, he has set us free from this evil age. God has set us free through Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus. You have been set free unto freedom. 
What else does it look like? It looks like it is spirit-filled. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you, or ask this question rather, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so our freedom, we have been set free from the eternal punishment of sin and death, and we have been set free and established by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has supernaturally done something in you to set you free, and that should lead us rejoicing with hallelujah. I am free, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but because of who he is and what he's done in Jesus. I have been set free. Now, for many of us, you come into this understanding of Christianity, and Christianity, for a vast number of us, people in our community, people we run into in the South, Christianity is all about insurance for death. I know where I'm going when I die. What does that look like for you to be a Christian? It's knowing where I go when I die. Well, what does that look like for you to be a Christian right now? You're like, I don't want to get into that, but when I die, it looks like a change of location. It's not going to be so hot there. There's going to be air conditioning everywhere. There'll be angels all around. This basket we're currently traveling in is getting a little bit warm. But in the midst of this, what we recognize is that he has not set us free merely for insurance for death, but he has set us free in assurance for life. Do you see the difference there? One looks at it primarily and says, what's going to happen to me when I die? And so salvation is about what happens to me when I die. The other one says, what's going to happen to you in the midst of submitting yourself to Christ is assurance over the course of your life into life eternal. One finds us living in submission to Christ, and that is the only place where real freedom is found. And the other finds us living in submission to self, doing whatever I want to do, whatever my culture dictates to me, and I'm not really ever free. I'm only ever enslaved to my passions, and I'm still living enslaved to this evil age. Paul's got the same issue. Paul's got the same issue. The Galatians want to look like those that are confronting them. They want to look like those that are leading them in a path that seems to be better. And what Paul tells them, he says, listen, Christ has set you free for freedom. Within the first century, you're a slave. And your master, for whatever reason, decides that he is going to set you free. And so let's say he goes into the temple of Apollos. And he walks in, he says, this man, this woman is my slave, and I'm going to set them free. And they say, okay, well, how are you going to set them free? To what are you going to set them free? And so you can walk into the temple and you say, I'm going to set them free unto Apollos. What does that mean? It means that they're no longer your slave. They're no longer your servant. So they move from your ownership, and they come around And they have to live their lives in faithfulness and service in that temple. Right? They've just transferred from one owner to another. Jesus changes everything. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. God actually wants you to enjoy freedom. He wants you to recognize that you have been freed from sin and death in the, in, in the trappings of this evil age, that you have been filled with his Holy Spirit. Paul recognizes that having this understanding is going to lead us to combat two things, primarily within this passage. And those two things are apathy and legalism. Apathy and legalism. 
and, and, and running into our freedom, we have to encounter and we have to overcome apathy and we have to encounter and overcome legalism. Look at what he says. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So the first thing he addresses is the idea of apathy. I run into so many Christians that their understanding of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ is completely humdrum and boring. And so you talk to them and say, what, what has God done for you? Like, well, you know, so he saved me, so I've got that. And so I suppose that when I die, you know, there's, there's hope for something else. Well, what has God done in your life lately? Well, there was that parking spot yesterday. I was early, though. I'm not really sure that was him. People aren't as mean to me as they used to be. But I've also been quarantining, so there's that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, now that you think about it, I haven't, haven't, haven't thought about God. And what was, your, what was your question again? Like, we laugh, but this is the reality that most of us live with. This understanding that we are completely apathetic in our relationship to God. The God who has set you free. So Paul writes and he says, stand firm, push back against. And how do you run into this, this, this understanding that you are meant to be continually standing firm and pushing back against this? You're only ever going to get there in so much as you come into this understanding. I am filled with his spirit. He has transferred me by his grace. And in those realities, I find my ability to stand firm. Some of us, the reason we're so incredibly tired and exhausted is because you're not resting and trusting and using the ability of God. You are using your own abilities to stand firm. So you find yourself pushing back against the culture. You find yourself pushing back against people that disagree with you. You find yourself pushing back against sin. But what has he said in the midst of this? He said it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So standing firm means that you are apprising yourself to the reality of your freedom. And check this out. You're doing it with your other brothers and sisters in Christ. You're standing firm with them. Nothing Nothing in this passage lets us know that we are have that we that we are that we are in this individualized all by my lonesome standing firm. The picture he's painting in here is a wall of brothers and sisters in Christ all standing shoulder to shoulder together standing firm and pushing back. This is what it looks like. We stand firm together and we fall together. We have to stand firm, and we're pushing back against the idea of apathy. So when I look to the right and I begin to see my brother or sister in Christ falling back and saying, I just don't really care. I'm just really all into it. I'm just, I'm just not going to read my Bible because, you know, I'm, I've got everything else taken care of. We say, no, he has saved you for assurance for all of life. Stand firm with me. And when they begin to fall back, I come behind them, and I put my hands behind them, and I'm supporting them because I'm standing firm with them, and they're standing firm with me. And so it is this line after line after line of Christians helping one another to stand firm. We push back against apathy and we do it together. There is no off-season in Christianity. There's only standing firm in our freedom. So we have apathy, we have legalism. Look at, what, look at how he describes it. He says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Do not be enslaved to slavery is the way that he's describing it. No, you'd say, I've never really liked Leviticus, and I've never really liked Deuteronomy, Leviticus part two. And so I'm not a legalist. I'm not a legalist in this conception of things. But many of us have this understanding that our faith is of our own making. You're faithful in church attendance. You're faithful in giving. You're faithful in sharing the gospel. You're faithful in reading your Bible. But all the while, in the, in the middle of doing those things, you have this understanding that the more you do, the more God is pleased with you. And when you don't do these things, you have this understanding that God is no longer pleased with you. You see, because your understanding of these things, that God is not pleased with you on the basis of what Christ has done, but instead, God is pleased with you because of what you are currently doing. So you're not submitting yourself to a yoke of slavery and the law. You're committing yourself to a yoke of slavery in a works-based righteousness. And the more we head in this direction, the more we will find ourselves growing in anger and resentment to people that disagree with us. People that don't hold a carbon copy of our opinion on anything in particular. And what Paul says there. You're going to find yourself wanting to move between these two things. You're going to find yourself wanting to move between apathy, it's all just too much, I guess I just won't do anything, or falling into this rut, this well-worn path that we constantly travel down of empty religiosity. There comes the possibility, there comes the possibility, and in fact I would say there comes the likelihood that the more you live in faithfulness to God from a sense of rote obedience, it's not mindfulness, your mind's not in it, you're not concentrated on anything. It's just that I wake up at 5.45, I read my Bible for five minutes, I journal for two minutes, I fix a cup of coffee, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. When we find ourselves in these predictable patterns of behavior, and we're not stopping to address these things, we're not stopping to allow our heart to be, to be uh, softened, we're not stopping to allow our hearts to be addressed by God, we're not allowing room for his Holy Spirit to change, to correct, to alter. In the midst of these things, what we're creating in ourselves and in our lives is a rut, a ditch of obedience that finds ourselves not living a spirit-filled lives even though outwardly it looks religious. In reality, it's empty religiosity, not a spirit-filled joyousness of freedom enjoyed and freedom exercised. You see, in the midst of those things, we've been set free to our autonomy. We've been set free unto rigorous rule-keeping in empty, lifeless, dead obedience. And neither of those things are the freedoms that Christ has set us free for. Look at two through four. Paul lists out the negative consequences of this empty rule keeping. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Back in chapter two and verse 21, he says, I don't nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In, Ephesians, in uh, rather Hebrews 10 and verse 14, Speaking of Jesus, he says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Jesus Christ, his one sacrifice, sanctifies you forever. It makes you holy, able to approach God. 
He says that if you move into this understanding of a works-based righteousness, which is what accepting circumcision stood for, you empty the cross of all value to you. Christ is no longer useful for you. Man, this should call into question all of our motives and all of our understandings, and it should call into question in some sense, why am I sitting here listening to this man drone on and on even today? Why are you here? Why don't you read your Bible? Why don't you give or not give? Why do you do any of the things you do? Is it out of a sense of love and response to God and the grace that he's given you? Or is it just kind of mindless obedience? I just, this looks like the picture of what I think I may be supposed to do. This looks like the picture of what I think faithfulness might look like. What did he tell us in this, Lisa? Works-based righteousness. Empty rule following empties the cross of its value. So I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. James 2 and 10 tells us that if you keep the whole law but you fail in one single provision, then you fail in every single way. Paul tells us in the midst of this, listen, if you want to live a life in such a way that is rigorous rule keeping, if you want to live a life in such a way that you're going to take for you this thing, circumcision, which stands for workspace righteousness, that in the midst of living like this, in this path, you've got to keep the whole thing. You've got to do everything. So over the course of the way you live your life, we live our lives in one of two responses. It, And so one of those responses is to say, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I have rejected God. I recognize that the penalty and the punishment, the payment for that sin is payable to God for rejecting him. And that payment for my sins, if I try and pay it on my part, I'm going to fail. But I can can head down this path of rigorous rule keeping. I can head down this path of workspace righteousness. And I can feel pretty good in the middle of doing these things. Because when people look at me and they say, Jeremy, how are you doing? You're like, I'm doing pretty good. I shared the gospel with four people. I gave 10% before taxes. I did all these various things. And I am a person moving towards righteousness. And they say, this is good, great, and amazing. The next morning he wakes up and he yells at Delaney. And we would all do this number if he did that. Because she's such an amazingly wonderful person. Amen? You guys don't know Delaney very well. She is an amazingly wonderful person. When we find ourselves moving towards works-based righteousness, we're communicating to God, I don't need Jesus. I can get to you on my own. I don't need Jesus. I can get to you on my own. Paul says when you communicate that, you are actually all on your own. And that's a terrifying predicament. That's a terrifying reality. So this is what's on offer. What's on offer is an admission of guilt from me. I'm a sinner. I'm entrapped to sin. Confess that to you. Jesus died and he rose again. I want to be united to you in faith. I want to live my life in submission to you. I'm not going to be a slave to my way of doing things. I'm going to be a slave to you and righteousness. He says, come, the way is clear. The other path is to look at it and say, 
I understand the weight and the significance of all these things, but I've got it on my own. I'm going to engage in this because I feel pretty confident that I can do the right things. If this is the path that you pursue, there is no sacrifice for your sins. Because essentially what you're communicating is I can do it by myself. When Jesus was sacrificed, when he died and he rose again, he took away the need for ever there being another sacrifice offered. And he took away the significance, the importance, and the efficacy of any sacrifice ever offered again. For one time, he offered a sacrifice for all sins. When you reject that, and you live a life of works-based righteousness, you're putting it all on you. And what Paul tells us here is that you have to keep the whole law. And if you do this, look at what he says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You are separated, removed, completely removed from Jesus. You who would be justified by the law. You who would be considered righteous on the basis of doing good and right things. You who would base your eternal security and salvation on the opinions of those around you. You who would do this, you are severed from Christ. He says, and you have fallen from grace. Grace, Paul speaks about in Ephesians 2.8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Now, Paul is setting up a hypothetical here. Paul isn't pointing out and looking at the Galatians and saying, listen, Galatian Christians, you can lose your salvation. He's saying, listen, if what you believe is that you can be good enough, right enough, enough of the time to make it to God on your own, you're completely separated from God. You're completely separated from Christ. And if you are completely separated from God, completely separated from, from Christ, You have removed yourself from being able to receive the benefits of God's grace. They're of no use to you. Because what you've communicated to God in your actions and what you've communicated to God in your thoughts is, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. The reality of what we read in Scripture over and again is that none of us can do it on our own. Most of our days, if not our weeks, and certainly by the time we hit the month status, if we are honest, and if you're a liar, you should hire somebody to be honest for you, would lead us to the understanding that we are unable to do this all. But y'all, God in His grace and His mercy knew of our waywardness, knew of our fallenness. So he sent his son to be this atoning sacrifice for us. And this is how Paul can end in 5 and 6. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Paul had previously said that when Abraham believed God, it was reckoned him as righteousness. It is our belief in God. The fact that we would say, 
We believe that God has sent his son to die in our place, die in our stead. Christ's righteousness is what I wear. Christ's righteousness is what God seeks. And the fact that I avail myself, that I take in for myself over and over again the importance of Christ's righteousness for myself always sees me walking in freedom because I don't feel the compunction to get stuck in apathy and I don't feel the need to be righteous on my own. In fact, I'm reminded time and time again, I am a sinner in need of grace. And freshly, newly, rejoicingly, he lavishes his grace upon me again. So what is awaiting me and what is awaiting every person who places their hope and trust in Christ and not their ability to do enough right things and enough right things in the right way for long enough, what awaits every single one of those people is the hope of righteousness. That you'll stand before your king and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done and welcome in. Look at how he describes the Christian. He says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. There were those in in their community who said, listen, if you don't take circumcision... You have no part in God. And there were those who were just boisterous. And they said, ha, I don't need circumcision. And Paul just says, let me just tell you to both, please be quiet. Go to your respective corners and put a sock in it. Because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither one of those things, the doing or the not doing of the thing, makes you more righteous. None one of these things makes you more righteous. Going to Sunday school, worship, small group, giving before taxes, all these things. None of these actions make you more righteous. He says this is the only thing that matters. Faith working through love. Faith working through love. Paul gets in chapter 2 and chapter 3. What he is rolling through and getting them this understanding of is you have been made righteous through faith. I have this radical trust in Jesus. That Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection is enough for me. And every person I meet on the street, to the wayward homeless person who you don't want to stop, you don't want to talk to, to the the person that I most despise, to the most wicked person on this earth, the trust in God, and my trust in God leads me to this understanding that if they come to have faith in him, faith in what Christ has done for them, then he can radically transform and change their hearts. Our God specializes in dead, wayward people. And I see that when I look at you. And I hope you see that when you look at me. That our God specializes in dead, wayward people. So I put my trust in him. I exercise faith in him. And the power of his spirit working and moving in us. What we show is love. This is revolutionary. The greatest characteristic of what it looks like for you to live in the fullness of freedom in Christ is for the people around you to experience the love of God in your life. So, if the people around you aren't repeatedly coming into contact with the love of God, 
through the way you live your life, you are failing to live in the freedom of Christ. Because the freedom that Christ died to give you, to allow you to live in, only ever produces love. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for a chance to study your word. God, for an opportunity to worship you in taking the supper. And Father God, we just pray that you would help our hearts to be softened to what it is to live in the assurance of our lives through the sacrifice of your Son. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, I pray that you would confront them with your word, that you would invite them by the power of your spirit to know and to follow Jesus. God, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts. And we submit these things to you. In Christ's name, amen.